Father in heaven, you are mighty and, and powerful. You're gracious and merciful to us. And this last week, you have exhibited that mercy and grace and power to us plentiful times. We confess to you that we're very often very, um, very dense and don't always see it or just almost feel like we expect it. But Lord, you have been so gracious to us. We thank you for this time when we get together now. As we look into Psalm 21, we pray for your guidance there and your help. We ask you to stir our hearts and draw us closer to you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, for anyone who didn't bring a Bible, and, or maybe you have bad eyes, I printed out Psalm 21, a little bit larger print. Okay, ah, yes, okay. So if you would like a copy, anybody else? Can you hand those out for me, please? Lee's going to hand them out if you need them, okay? And it's okay to say that it's hard to read the print. I got it in our Bibles. So we're going to turn to Psalm 21 as we continue our series in the Psalms. So I'm calling Psalm 21 victory. That's what I'm going to, and we'll get into this in a minute, but that's what I'm calling Psalm 21. So if anyone needs a copy of a larger print version of Psalm 21, it's right there. All right. Let's read Psalm 21. To the choir master, Psalm of David. O Yahweh, in your strength the king rejoices, in your salvation how greatly he exults. You have given him his heart's desire and have not withheld the request of his lips, for you meet him with rich blessings. You set a crown of fine gold upon his head. He asked life of you. You gave it to him, length of days, forever and ever. His glory is great through your salvation. Splendor and majesty you bestow on him. For you make him most blessed forever. You make him glad with the joy of your presence. For the king trusts in Yahweh, and through the steadfast love of the Most High, he shall not be moved. Your hand will find out all your enemies, and your right hand will find out those who hate you. You will make them as a blazing oven when you, repair, when you appear. Yahweh will swallow them up in his wrath, and, and fire will consume them. You will destroy their descendants from the earth their offspring, and their offspring from among the children of man. They pl uh, though they plan evil against you, though they devise mischief, they will not succeed, for you will put them to flight. You will aim at their faces with your bows. Be exalted, O Yahweh, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. So as I read to you the psalm, Psalm 21, anything that was just right up front obvious to you, something about the psalm, maybe voice changes or any of those things, I'm just throwing that out as an example. Oh yeah, so kind of a, what Bob's calling a happy voice in the first part, not so happy voice in the second part, okay? You should, you should have heard a change. There's a change in the way the language is. What else? Anybody see anything else? Just real quick before we go on. Yes? How's it a contrast? Ah, hold that thought. Very good, Sue Ann. So there's a so there's a difference in voice in the the tone from Psalm 20 to Psalm 21. 
Almost as if the Lord, she says, I'm quoting her, almost as if the Lord answered the prayer of Psalm 20. Hold that thought. Yes, ma'am. Ooh, it kind of moves in the future tense. Right. Yeah. Very good. All right, anybody else? Very good. So as you're reading the Psalms, I hope you continue doing that kind of stuff. It's, it's good to do. It's healthy to do. And it helps you to realize what's going on in the Psalm. Okay? All right. So I'm calling it victory. Um, so I want you to think about Psalm 20, 21, and 22 all go together. And I'm going to make this assertion, and hopefully I'll keep on emphasizing this. The Psalm 20, 21, and 22 are very good. Good Friday, Easter, and Ascension Psalms. Okay? They're very, very beautiful at Good Friday, Easter, and Ascension. When we get to Psalm 22 next week, you can't miss the Good Friday overtones. But the Easter one, I already mentioned to you last week, uh, in one passage in Psalm 20, and you can't miss it here, plus the ascension. So keep that in mind. Psalm 20, 21, and 22 made me think about uh, actually incorporating them in our Good Friday service, actually using all at least two of the Psalms, Psalm 20 and 21 maybe. Okay? So notice that strength, strength bookends this psalm. Look at verse 1 and verse 13. So verse 1, O Lord, uh, O Yahweh, in your strength the king rejoices. And then verse 13, the exalted O Yahweh in your strength. So strength bookends this psalm. It's about strength or it's coming out of God's strength and so forth. That's where I kind of, that, that and something else is where I picked up the title of victory. Okay, so here's how it's going to break down. So, you notice the tone, the happy tone, and then the not-so-happy tone, and so forth, Bob. Very good. So, Yahweh's victory, verses 1 through 7. But notice I put the word is here. Yahweh's victory is the king's victory, verses 18, or 8 through 12, is the people's victory, verse 13. And that's the three points when you look at Psalm 21. Yahweh's victory is the king's victory is the people's victory, okay? So keep those three in mind, okay? And they're all related. I'll do that as we go through. Okay. Verses 1 through 7. Once more, there is no historical note as to when this was written uh, when the, uh, that's attached to the psalm. Yet, when you look and listen to it, you can tease out a context, and Sue Ann teased out a context. And the context again, Sue Ann, was? Sounds like the answer to prayer in Psalm 20. I think that's a great way to understand it. Psalm 20 is asking for the king to be victorious. Psalm 21, hallelujah, you gave the king victory. Right? And so, when you, that's why these two psalms have got to go together. You've got to have them together because it really does fit together. Better than Lego blocks, I'm just telling you. All right, so chapter 2, verse 1, um, chapter 21, verse 1, salvation is used, the word salvation, and then down in verse 5, okay? And if you go back to Psalm 20, you saw it there four times. In Psalm 20, salvation, save, save, salvation. It's the same Hebrew word. It's that uh, 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 Yeshua, uh, Yeshua word. Uh, for salvation, victory, um, rescue, um, 
well-being, whatever, whatever you want to throw in there that goes along with salvation. Bigger than what we normally think of salvation, it includes, um, it includes all the different ways that God delivers his people. Okay? So again, just notice the connection, because there's, there's several connections with this psalm and the previous one. One of them is salvation. Anybody see any other connections before I go on? So I like maybe, um, maybe verse 2 and verse, yeah, verse 2 maybe. I'm sorry? Yes, giving him his heart's desire, which was where? Psalm 20, verse verse 4. Yeah, give him, yeah, give him his heart's desire. What are you going to say, Fred? Yeah, yeah, okay. How about also, look at verse, uh, look at the end of verse 2. You've not withheld the request of his lips. Is there a connection with that in Psalm 20? May not use the word lips, but... Yeah, the petitions, but especially like, look back at verse 1, chapter 20, verse 1. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. And here it is in 21, verse 2. And not withheld the request of his lips. Okay? So, yeah, there's all kinds of little connections like that that show how these two psalms go together. Okay, we're in Psalm 21. Okay, everybody, we're in Psalm 21. Everybody there? Yes. Yes, let the words of my mouth, meditation of my heart be accepted. So, I, I just want, it's good. I, I want you to keep seeing that there's these, this flowing sense of connections between these psalms, okay? It's really helpful because they're not necessarily standalone psalms. There's actually something going on in some of these connections, okay? And this one's very obvious. Give the king victory, hallelujah, there's victory, right? That's a pretty easy one. So yeah, we already talked about uh, 21 verse 2, and then chapter 20, uh, Psalm 20 verse 4 and verse 1. Um, so as Sue Ann said, Psalm 20 seems to have implied the king was going out to battle, and we're praying for him, and then you get to Psalm 21, it sounds like, as Sue Ann said, the answer to the prayer. There was success. Okay? Any, any questions or anything up to this point? All right, we're continuing on then. So what kind of speech or what type of voice are we hearing in verses 1 through 7? I'm sorry? Third person. Yeah. Right. The writer of the psalm is not talking about himself, but is talking about what the Lord has done for the king and how the king has, has uh, won. Okay? You all see that? Okay, because that voice is going to change when we get a little bit further down into verse 8 and following. So I love how the Westminster Confession of Faith, this is going to go a little tangent, but it's going to come back around. I love how as you're reading Psalm 21, verses 1 through 7, it's very meticulous. He's specifically mentioning specific aspects of salvation and victory. So I like the way the Westminster Confession of Faith puts it in a different context that men ought not to content themselves with a general repentance, but it is every man's duty to endeavor to repent of his particular sins particularly. I love that phrase, right? But how about thanksgiving? How about praise? This psalm, the people are praising God's particular victories particularly. 
Do you see it in Psalm 21, verses 1 through 7? They're being very particular, mentioning how God rescued their king, which meant they were rescued. Okay? And so, praising God's particular victories, particularly, if you were to take time to do, to do that yourself, to give... Uh, um, where did the typo come from? Okay. If you did this, what might your times of prayer sound like? If you spend time, instead of going into petition, but stopping for a moment to, to give thanks for God's particular uh, victories or particular salvations or particular helps particularly, what might that do to your prayers? How might that change them? It would lengthen them, which is not a bad thing. Yes, because you're rehearsing who? The Lord, right? And what He's done. What's our biggest problem most of the time? And let's be honest. We don't believe He's going to do anything. And so we scream and we shout and we cry and we go, help, 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 right? How about spending some time actually being very particular about God's particular victories and His grace where you've seen it displayed? Okay, Moose? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I mean, there's a place for being, just being quick about, you know, being, just crying out about your particular need, right? I mean, there's sometimes, there's just, there's emergencies. You just need to cry out, help! Right? And that's fine. So don't get me wrong. But I think that this is right, that what happens is that we're looking to the future as we, we're looking, we're in the moment and we're looking to the future as we think. We're all prophets, I just want you to know. The problem is we're all false prophets. The way we think the future is going to unfold. What would happen if we stopped for a moment and said, now here's how you've done things in the past and I've seen it. Thank you for that. And then here's my moment, now you move to the petition, here's my moment and I really don't have any idea how the future is going to unfold, but I know one thing. You've shown yourself faithful here, 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 here in the past. I can trust you to be faithful in the future. I'm worried about the future of this or that, but, but that's not necessarily what's going to happen. Does that make sense? It was Ed Welch and Paul Tripp who, who, pointed, who pointedly pointed out to me more than once that we are all false prophets. We're all foretelling our future and we've been wrong too many times. We're worse than weather forecasters. Okay? And I think that's really helpful to remember. All right. He'll do it again. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Very good. Oops, how'd that get there? All right, so verse 4. Uh, notice you meet him with rich blessings. For some reason, this just came to my head. There's so, a couple places where that comes up, where uh, where someone meets someone and it is to give them a blessing, and it, that language is actually used. You meet him, or he met him, etc. But the picture that came to my mind here's the Lord meeting him with rich blessings. Was Genesis 14 verses 17 through 20. Anybody just happen to know what that's about? Probably not. Melchizedek, 
when Abraham comes back from the great victory, who meets him? There's actually two groups that meet him, or two entities that meet him. Do you remember who comes out to meet Abraham? There's the king of Sodom and all of his entourage. They come out to meet him and to thank him for, the vic- you know, for, for doing what they couldn't do. And by the way, you can have anything, I, you can have any of the, the booty, just give us the people. And Abraham says no. But there's one other person that comes out to meet Abraham, and he's actually bringing Abraham something. He's meeting Abraham with blessing. Anybody know? Melchizedek. And what's he bringing to him? Bread and wine. I always think, hmm, hmm. I do a lot of hmm when I read the Bible, right? He meets him with rich blessing. And this is the picture that, that uh, the psalm is describing. The Lord has come to meet the king, came to meet the king with rich blessing, granted him success and victory, but met him, came to meet him with rich blessing, came out to meet him. Okay, and I think that that's a, that's a very, it's a warm statement. Can you think of one other time when the Lord, one specific time, a big time, when the Lord has come out to meet us with rich blessing? We just celebrated it in December. The Incarnation! Christmas! The Lord came and met us with rich blessing. Isn't that interesting? He took the initiative and came to us. Did he, did he need to? I mean, do, do we deserve it? Should he have come? No, we're not entitled. He did it out of his own rich grace, right? So, so maybe Psalm 21 could be a Christmas psalm too. All right, verse 6, and then chapter 16, verse 11. Notice verse 6. For you make him most blessed forever. You make him glad with the joy of your presence. In Psalm 16, verse 11, which is very much about the resurrection, um, he says, uh, you will show me the path of life in your presence is fullness of joy at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Okay? I just, that is really encouraging Where's the joy really found? When you look at that verse, where's the joy really found? It's the same thing in Psalm 1611. Where is that joy really found? In His presence, right? We normally look for joy. Circumstances, right? Relationships that we have here that are sometimes rocky and shaky, right? And yet it's in His presence where we have that joy. I love Again, I love the way that, you know, the way our catechism puts it, what's the chief in a man to glorify God and enjoy him forever. I think that Piper actually gets a good biblical dose in there for us, glorify God by enjoying him forever. Right? I mean, that's just exactly it. Okay? So verse 7, the steadfast love of the Most High. Let's talk about this for a minute. But the king trusts in Yahweh, and through the steadfast love of the Most High, he shall not be moved. So if you flip over, just take that statement, the steadfast love of the Lord, and you go to Psalm 103 very quickly. I just want to take a side note here. And starting at verse 10, I want you to see the contrast, because there's something of this going on in that verse we just looked at. I want you to notice kind of the contrast here. 
He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those. So great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. Um, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass, that he flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it and is gone, and his place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. So what's the contrast in that in Psalm 103, 10 through 17? Psalm 103, 10 through 17, what's a contract? What does not go on forever and ever, as it were? Us, right? And even our faithfulness. He talks about, you don't hold our sins against us. So even our faithfulness does not, is not always very durable. And we're not durable. But what is, in that passage, what is durable? The steadfast love of the Lord, right? I mean, doesn't that encourage you? The steadfast love of the, of the Lord endures. Okay? And so that's why he says back in Psalm 21, when he talks about the king, and notice how, what he says about the king being moved. And through the steadfast love of the Most High, he shall not be moved. The reason why he won't be moved is because the Lord's steadfast love is durable. It's not because the king is durable. The king is flimsy, he's human, he's frail, right? The, the reason why he's going to endure is because of the steadfast love of the Lord. My friends, that's the perseverance of the saints, too. We're not going to be, it's not once saved, always saved. All I have to do is receive Jesus and then I'm okay because I did it and I can live like the devil all I want. It's the fact that the Lord received me and therefore he will never lose me. The steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. Does that make sense? I love that verse. It's great. All right. So let me ask you, have you ever been in a bad car accident where you should not have walked away? And you did. Did you, you ever been in a car accident like that? And did you stop for a while and praise God, God's particular salvation particularly? Did you walk away from an accident you shouldn't have walked away from and spend time giving thanks to God? Specifically. She was over here shaking her head behind you, Yes. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I mean, that's just an easy one, right? But, I mean, I was in an accident one time. This is in Mississippi, and the trees were down because the ice storm before had knocked them all down, and so there's all these pipes sticking out everywhere at head level. And my car went sliding down the side of an embankment about 30 feet, and there are all these trees sticking out like that, and amazingly, I didn't get speared by any of them. They didn't even come into the car. I couldn't believe it. And I walked away, right? It was amazing. Right? Don't, I don't recommend car accidents, by the way. But it was one of those ones where I just stopped and I started doing this. I started checking body parts. Okay, am I here? No blood up here. No, I mean, I just started doing this and I was like, I cannot believe I'm alive. Right? And then spending time giving thanks, particularly. Okay. So, are there salvations in your life that you need to praise God particularly for? Maybe you haven't done it. Are there salvations in your life that you need to praise God particularly for? 
Okay? Great. Yes. Yeah, right. then you get surrounded by friends that say, oh, man, you were lucky. I don't think luck had much to do with that one, right? <laughs> sure. Anybody else? Oh, yeah, you should always have that in the back of your head because it finds its fulfillment in Jesus. But we're going to get to that specifically when we get to these next verses, but that's a good call. As you, you read these, and you're, you should be thinking about Christ. Some of it looks forward. I mean, it's all looking forward in some sense, right? It actually happened, but the fullness, the completion of it comes with Christ, okay? And so, you think about verses 1 through 7, and you're looking in the future from David's time forward, and you look at Christ, how would that, how would verses 1 through 7, uh, how, they, how would they point to Jesus? Huh? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, I mean, so you've got layers there. What Fred's referring to, you've got layers as you read it and actually going back through it and looking, maybe, maybe even take the time to go through a psalm and say, how does this point to David and what God has done in David's life? Then go back and say, how does this point to Jesus and what will happen in Jesus' life? And then stop and go back and say, now, how, what does that say to me? Okay? Instead of going immediately to me, start with what God has done with David and with Jesus, and then you have a firm ground when you get to the me part. Right? So very good. So yeah, so the, uh, the first part, you can't miss Easter. Verses 1 through 7, you cannot miss Easter. Easter morning, we should be shouting and singing the first seven verses of Psalm 20. Right? You raised Him from the dead. Death should have had Him forever, just like it's going to have us. But you raised Him from the dead. Right? No longer subject to, to misery or mortality. Wow, amazing. Right? So it should bring you to Easter. This is why I said earlier that Psalm 20, 21, and 22 are very fitting Good Friday, Easter, Ascension Psalms. All three of them bound together are perfect for that. All right, so Yahweh's victory, verses 1 through 7, is the King's victory, verses 8 through 12. So we're going to look now at 8 through 12. 
So notice that the voice changes in verses 8 through 12. It changes from petition to proclamation, or change, actually changes from praise. I should have said praise. Changes from praise to proclamation. So how do you know it changes from praise to proclamation? You will. Yeah. Right. So notice that you have done this and you will do that. Right. That's more proclamation. Talking about what God will do based upon what he's done. Okay. In fact, the word will in the English Standard Version is used nine times in verses 8 through 12. If you're using the New American Standard, it's ten times in the NIV, which hates redundancy and always drops repetition, uses it six times, okay? That was my little dig on the NIV, sorry. But they do, they drop all kinds of repetition. They just, maybe they were all ADHD, I don't know, the translators, I don't know. Um, But that's just me. So anyways, notice that will is used a huge amount of times that gives you that sense, this is proclamation pointing to something that God will do and declaring it, okay? Now think about all these things that are said that what God will do. Look at what he says God will do for David. You'll find out all your enemies. Your right hand will find out those who hate you. You'll make them as a blazing oven. When you appear, the Lord will swallow them up in his wrath. Fire will consume them. You will destroy your descendants from the earth and their offspring from among the children of man, um, etc. and so forth. So as you look at that, you have to ask the question, did these events completely happen at David's hand or Solomon's hand? Did David and Solomon find out all their enemies and snuff them out? No. Okay, so there's some hyperbole and metaphor, fire and all that stuff. You could maybe make a case that there's some metaphor there and and then maybe it's meant to be hyperbole, okay? But you don't see it being fully fulfilled. In fact, Solomon, for example, Solomon has an enemy from his own midst who goes off to Egypt to wait until his death to come back and undermine his kingdom. Jeroboam is his name, okay? And then there's actually, if you look at uh, uh, 1 Kings, towards the end of day, uh, Solomon's life, uh, the writer makes sure you know that God put enemies in Solomon's presence because Solomon was being unfaithful, but he put enemies there that were undermining him throughout part of his reign. Okay, and he mentions three of them specifically. Okay, so he, neither one of them wiped out all of their enemies completely. Okay, so that means then, as you read it, then you're looking, you're kind of looking, how, how are you reading that then? What are you, what are you thinking as you're reading that? Yeah, something prophetically, okay? Yeah, you're looking forward to Christ. Yeah, yeah, God answering prayer, okay? Very good. So, so let's look over at 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. We could go to places in Revelation as well. A lot of people don't like this kind of language that's in the psalm, and yet I want you to see that this is very Christian language. This idea of finding out your enemies and destroying them, burning them up, consuming them, and so forth. So, Second Thessalonians chapter 1. Paul writes these words to a young church that he had been, he had been run out of town, remember, because um, 
folks didn't like what he was preaching and they ran him out. He was threatened. They ran him out. And so he's telling, so I imagine this church is feeling pressure, okay? And notice that what he's going to say in verses 5 through 10 are meant to encourage those who have embraced the good news. And it warns those who refuse to with the bad news. So here, verses 5 through 10. This is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering since God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might when He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. You read those words in Psalm 21, verses 8 through 12, and then Paul picks up that theme in 2 Thessalonians to encourage this young church, okay? And so the language is legitimate language. It's right language, right? It, it's, um, it's proper. The king is going to snuff out his enemies. The day is coming, okay? So I just want you to see the New Testament connection. I've told you before, C.S. Lewis didn't like the Psalms because, and he didn't think they were inspired because of language like that, okay? And he said, well, Christians just can't pray like that. Hello, have you read 2 Thessalonians? Right? And then just think about Revelation. How is Jesus pictured, pictured in Revelation when you get to chapter 14 and you get to, towards the end of Revelation? How is he pictured? Is he a big teddy bear? He's coming forth as a warrior and his war style with a two-edged sword coming out of his mouth, treading the winepress of the wrath of God the Almighty. Right? I mean, it's very, very clear language. Okay? So Good. So when you think about verses 8 through 12 uh, and the king winning and the king will win utterly, okay? And, and how does that fit us as we pray and how does that fit us as Christians? I love the way the Heidelberg Catechism puts it when it's explaining that uh, phrase or statement in the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come, and it says this. That is, rule us so by thy word and spirit that we may submit ourselves more and more to thee, preserve and increase thy church, destroy the works of the devil and all violence which would exalt itself against thee, and also all wicked counsels devised against thy holy word, till the full perfection of the kingdom take place wherein thou shalt be all in all. That's taking in that Psalm 21, verses 8 through 12, and what you see, like, for example, in 2 Thessalonians, and then pulling it into the Lord's Prayer, Thy kingdom come. We mean, we mean some pretty stout stuff when we say, Thy kingdom come. Okay? In fact, the Westminster Shorter Catechism puts it this way. Uh, we pray that Satan's kingdom may be destroyed. That's pretty violent that the kingdom of grace may be advanced, ourselves and others brought into it and kept in it, and that the kingdom of glory may be hastened, that the kingdom of Satan may be destroyed. Okay? Psalm 21 is a Christian prayer. 
If you didn't get that, then I'm making sure it's clear now. It's a Christian prayer. We should be praying that way at times, okay? So anything up to this point? Any questions? Oh, I think some of it is, is probably honest fear that we may be wrong, right? That sometimes we say, that's our enemy, and they're not really our enemy. They're my enemy. They're not God's enemy. Right? There's a difference. By the way, if you didn't know that, not all of your enemies are God's enemies. And I think that's a huge point to make. And so that's what makes, I think, part of it. I think that's part of it. I think the other part, too, is the fact that we, especially in the West, and I don't know why the, I mean, I could go back historically through some of this, but we've become even more mushy. We want a mushy spirituality. And so to actually pray like this, a lot of Christians right now, I think, would be scandalized. And yet, our forebears prayed like this all the time. Okay? Moose. Ah, that's a great question. So we love our neighbors. Um, we love our neighbors. We also love God, what God loves, and hate what God hates. If someone is, is, some, if someone is doing something really, really evil, okay, it's evil, and it's wrong, and we have to stand against it, right? We have to despise it because God does, Okay. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's why, Ben, that's why I have this up here. Not all of our enemies are God's enemies. What we're praying primarily against is God's enemies. Unfortunately, we cloud these two categories. We, we feel like God, our enemies are God's enemies. And we've got to keep those two separate. Okay? Uh, does that make sense? All right. Great question, Ben. So, um, oh, I already mentioned that. Okay. So, uh, what are we prone to do regarding our enemies? What are we prone to do regarding our enemies? We've already kind of bumped into it a little bit. Yes. Yeah. Yes. 
Yeah, my last book I wrote about images and imaging a narrative where I remember the um, early World War One. we made the Germans, right? We had these posters, war posters, that Germans were these blood, these ca uh, uh, cannibalistic Huns. That's what we always called them, right? And we dehumanized them. We did this with World War II with the Japanese, you know, those kinds of things where we make them far more evil. And then we forget what Ben was talking about. Well, that line between good and evil, as uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn put it, runs through all of us, you know. Yes, Fred. Yeah. There, there's a respect, a respect that goes on. If I take, if, if we take those who are God's enemies, if we take them serious enough to pray for them and against them, there's a respect there. Well, these are in your image, and they're doing this reprehensible thing. You see what's going on here, you know. So there is a sense of respect there, Moose. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So that gets where I'm going with this. So how do we know, what are we prone normally to do regarding our enemies? Normally we revolt, we respond, you know, with, um, with some intensity, right? But then how do we normally regard, uh, what do we normally do or prone to do concerning God's enemies? There's a, if there's a difference... How do we respond? And sometimes our responses are different. What are sometimes what happens when it's God's enemies? We don't take it personal, and so we almost can be dismissive, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so my point here in asking this, these two questions, is that oftentimes we react pretty strongly when it's our enemies, but when it's God's enemies, we're pretty lame, right? And we've got it backwards. Okay, good. So verse 11 tells us that these are whose enemies. Verse 11 tells us whose enemies are these. How do you know? Yeah, they plan, they plan evil against you. Well, against the Lord's anointed, against David, but they're still, they plan evil, so there's an evil here. They've broken God's law. In fact, it goes on, they, they devise mischief. Okay, so this, uh, it's the fact they've done things that actually show that they're God's enemies, right? The way they plan and devise and its intention intended to go against what God wants, what God has described, okay? That's where I was going with that. So how might verses 8 through 12 work out? Um, if you're using verses 8 through 12, how might it look if we were using verses 8 through 12, say, in a, a prayer service? Ooh, yes, there have been, yes. Over the years, there have been times, yes. Putting names, maybe. You have to be very careful with it, but yes.
Okay? Yeah, yeah. Yes. Yes. Yep. Right. 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 And that's a good that's a good thought to always keep in your head. Okay? Sometimes we make our political enemies God's enemies and they're just put they're just on the other side of the political fence and it's not against God's law. It's just the way we don't like it, right? And so there's a difference there. But there are times, I mean, imagine if you were in Nazi Germany. This is an easy target. If you were in Nazi Germany, you know, here's Adolf Hitler. Dietrich Bonhoeffer and several others, they mentioned Adolf in their prayers, right? Very fitting to do so. That would be an example, okay? Fred, did you have some? Or Yeah, 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 yep, yeah. I love the hymn that we have in our hymn book that actually is a confession, our confession of sin, but it identifies in generalities, but still identifies our, our national sins. That's good. CJ? Hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm sure people did. Yes, yes, Cindy. Yes, there's no almost. Yeah, we did, yes. Yep, we would use them. Yes. Absolutely. The Lord answer our prayers. Yeah. So, yeah. So, the other way this works out is you think about how it works out. So, God, uh, the prayers for, for God to wipe out the king's enemies, how would the wiping out, how might the wiping out look? Okay, I don't want to get specific and gory necessarily, but it actually goes in two potential directions. Yes. Then they're no longer enemies. He wiped out the enemies. They're now brothers and sisters in Christ. Right? And then the other side, of course, is very obvious. Wiping them out. You, you remember John Butler, would, when he would lead a congregational prayer, sometimes he would say, may these magistrates repent of their sins and so forth, and if they don't, then move them out of the way. Right? That's exactly the way you're, you're thinking as you're praying in precatory psalms. Okay? You know. But you hope, you hope, uh, that they actually change. Yes. 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 Yep. Yep. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Good call. That's good. So do you hear there's a, there's a bad news, good news aspect. How is verses 8 through 12, how is that good news? Who's that good news for as you're praying that? How is there a good news aspect to verses 8 through 12? Somebody's watching over us. Right. And if the, if the fortunes of the people are wrapped up in their king, 
than those aligned with the king. This is a good news prayer. Right? How is it bad news? Those who aren't aligned with the king, bad news, right? You can't, I don't want you to forget the good news for some is bad news for others. That is hugely important. When you're, doing, when, you're, when you're explaining the gospel, there is a good news, bad news aspect. You have to get there and say, and if, you know, this is what's waiting all of us, and here's what Jesus has done. If we receive him, we're rescued. There's no, therefore not no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. But if you don't receive him, if you don't bow to him, the bad news is still waiting. Right? You have to say that. That's what... That's how the apostles preach the gospel. That's why when we do the Apostles' Creed today, it's very fitting and very gospel. It says, He ascended to the Father's right hand from which He will come to judge the living and the dead. Okay? All right. Let's move on. So, if the Yahweh's victory is the King's victory, the King's victory is, verse 13, the people's victory. So look at verse 13 very quickly. We're back to Yahweh's strength. We already mentioned that. Um, and we've talked about how his strength has been displayed in this victory. So again, Yahweh's victory is the king's victory, is the people's victory. Seeing that connection is extremely important. So what's the desire of verse 13? What's the desire of verse 13? The exalted, O Yahweh, in your strength, we will sing and praise your power. What's the desire? Yeah, right, and, and that's a part of our prayer. We have the Lord's Prayer, hallowed be thy name. Same, it's the same intent, right? And so, um, oh, I already got it up here. Yeah, hallowed be thy name. You think of Psalm 67, uh, God be merciful to us and bless us and cause his face to shine upon us. Say, Law, that, you're great, that your sa- uh, saving health may be known among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Oh, let the nations be glad and sing with joy, for you shall judge the people righteously etc. Let the peoples praise you. So God's judgment and people being rescued and God's name being hallowed, right? That's the intent of verse 13. Okay, we're almost done. So how is this psalm a perfect Easter psalm? Especially when you get, uh, when you connected to Psalm 20. Can you see that? Who put that green up there? Who would be the knuckle? Oh, that was me. I'm sorry. I'll fix that next time. Now, how would be Psalm 20 be, Psalm 21, especially as you think about Psalm 20 as the background, how would Psalm 21 be an Easter psalm? Right. Right. There's the cross, but then the Easter psalm. You brought victory. The resurrection. Right? Very simple. All right. So how is this psalm an excellent ascension psalm? When the Lord entered into heaven and sat at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, he was, he was crowned, he was coronated as King of kings and Lord of lords. And so you know, what do you know? Think about Stephen when he was being martyred. Who did Stephen see? Jesus. And what did he see Jesus doing? Was he sitting there twiddling his thumbs? He was standing. The king of kings knows. And he will judge. Right? That's ascension. Or part of ascension. So Psalm 21 makes a great ascension song. This is who he is. This is the victory. He will judge. Okay? Great. So this week, focus on praising God's particular salvation particularly. 
I love that phrase. And if you can't think of anyone else to pray about when you're thinking of verses 8 through 12, then pray against the world, the flesh, and the devil. Okay? There's nobody in the news or anything that, that you know personally that verses 8 through 12 would be about. There's always the world, the flesh, and the devil. As our book of church order says in, in our baptism, we are solemnly re- to, uh, received into the bosom of the visible church, distinguished from the world, and them that are without and united with believers, and that all who, believe, who are baptized in the name of Christ do renounce and by their baptism are bound to fight against. And that also means prayer, to fight against the devil, the world, and the flesh. If nothing else, you've still got enemies. The world, the flesh, and the devil. So Psalm 21, verses 8 through 12 are very fitting, even in that regard. Okay? Next week, we'll do Psalm 22. Any questions or anything? Please read Psalm 22 this week, because I won't read all of it. We'll just start working on it, okay? Because it's uh, 40 verses or something like that. Okay? Or maybe I will read it. Who knows? Okay, I don't know. But do read it and watch for the shift in Psalm 22. There is a significant shift in Psalm 22 that takes you from Good Friday to Easter. Okay? Let's pray. Thank you, our Lord, our God, that you have been so particular in your salvation of us, in your rescue. Not only have you saved us from our sins, and that's ginormous. Not only have you redeemed us and rescued us from our our hostage situation. Lord, you have done many other things. You've saved us from destruction in so many different ways. Auto accidents we've talked about. I'm sure Moose could tell stories where guns were involved and he walked away. Lord, you have been our Savior day after day. We drive places and we get there safely. Who got us there? You brought us there. So Lord, for all of those things and many, many others that we've not even mentioned, you, we confess you are our salvation, our hope. And so thank you. We pray that you'd be with us now as we get ready to enter into the assembly, that you would lift our hearts, you would draw us close, that we would worship you in spirit and in truth. We would sing your praises, that um, the word, the sacraments and prayer would be means of grace to us to lift our hearts and fortify us. In Jesus' name, amen.